thrive during periods of economic growth and low inflation. And we don't blame you. It's been a great ride. But it's a big world out there, full of opportunities you may be ignoring. Sadly, we live in a world dominated by a fear of missing out, or FOMO. And in the last 10 years, U.S. equities and bonds have outperformed and generated massive amounts of FOMO. This hasn't always been the case. In the mid-2000s, the best-performing markets were international equities, especially emerging markets, gold and commodities. So what happens if growth collapses and inflation becomes the new norm? Or what if the U.S. dollar collapses and U.S. assets are no longer attractive? What will the new FOMO markets be? And will your portfolio keep up or be left behind? Enter Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund, ticker RDMIX, a strategy that is designed to thrive across different markets and economic regimes. Unlike most traditional strategies that keep allocation static and let volatility happen, Adaptive Asset Allocation applies a proprietary systematic process designed to dynamically transition toward thriving asset classes and eliminate those that are not, all the while aiming for consistent volatility and stable returns. There's almost always a bull market somewhere in the world. Don't let yesterday's FOMO get in the way of tomorrow's opportunities. Instead, let Adaptive Asset Allocation help you fill in your domestic portfolio gaps. To learn more, visit RationalMF.com and check out the Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. Due to industry regulations, no funds managed or subdivised by the host will be discussed in this podcast. All opinions expressed by the host are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. All right. Happy Friday. Welcome. Resolve right. Riffs. Welcome We've got away. Wade Fow here today with us. And um, wow, wait, I didn't realize you actually have, have you're like a prolific publisher. Um, um, most recently retirement planning guidebook, but also safety first retirement planning. How much can I spend in retirement? A book on reverse mortgages. You've been busy. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of been the main activity for me over the last few years, cranking out books, (laughs) but, uh, with the retirement planning guidebook, I'm, I'm done writing new, new books at this point. (laughs) All right. Good. So maybe just for those who don't already know you. Oh, Go before ahead. we before we uh, jump in and have Wade give us a bit of his background, we should just remind everyone that nothing we discussed today should be considered as investment advice in any way, shape, or form. This conversation is for information and hopefully entertainment purposes. And if you're seeking uh, professional advice, uh, do so in your own jurisdiction and seek a an advisor or a professional in your uh, in your area. So with that, Wade, welcome. And uh, I think Adam was going to ask you a little bit about your background, so. You might as well just uh, hit us with it. Okay, sure. Yeah, so I'm Wade Pau. I'm a professor of retirement income. I think it's still a unique job title uh, at the American College of Financial Services, which is located in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. And I run the Retirement Income Certified Professional Designation Program, which is a three-course sequence for financial advisors that covers all the different aspects of retirement income planning. I also do a lot of research, 
I've, my own personal website is Retirement Researcher. Uh, and then more recently with the Retirement Income Style Awareness, it's something I developed with Alex Margia, where we're trying to provide a framework for people to think about how to choose the different retirement strategies out there to, to find out which one really is most appropriate for them. Wow, I think people would um, be surprised to learn that there are multiple optimal retirement strategies, I guess, that um, just drive towards different retirement objectives and preferences. Is that how you mm -hmm. characterize the differences? Yeah, okay. Yeah, different viable your... strategies. <laughs> okay, gotcha. I'd love to know how you stumbled into retirement income as a focus. Like, what, what is your academic background um, and then professional background that sort of led you on this journey? Mm -hmm. At some level, it was just personal interest in learning how to save and invest and so forth. But actually, kind of fortuitously, in, in graduate school, I started to study the social security reform ideas that were prevalent in the early 2000s, the idea of carving out a personal retirement account or a personal account out of social security, kind of making social security into partly like a 401k plan uh, and testing how that might actually work in practice. And ultimately, what I was doing to look at that translated into this whole idea of individual retirement planning. So I did take a detour after grad school. I, I went to Japan. I was a professor at a university in Tokyo that uh, mainly was for public policy and, and government officials from developing and emerging market countries. So spent some time looking at uh, pension funds from developing and emerging market countries. But then when I was ready to come back to the U.S., that's when I really came to understand that retirement income planning is a, is a new, hot, interesting field <laughs> to get involved with. And, and so made that full switch over at that point. Nice. Um, I, I always make the, the statement or have made this statement many, many times ago, but one of the greatest policy errors of the last 50 years is the privatization of retirement plans. Um, and I, I say that for a bunch of reasons, but um, you know, one, one of them being that you lose the, the pooling, the longevity pooling mm -hmm. benefits, um, which are just unbelievably powerful. Um, but also because now you're sort of, you're requiring every individual to get a, a relatively deep understanding of investment and, and retirement optimization, which, you know, um, are fairly specialized fields. And um, <laughs> so anyways, I'd love to Maybe do you have any reaction to that? No, I couldn't agree more. It's we had a defined benefit pension system in the U.S. and we gave that up for defined contribution, where instead of centralizing and pooling risk and having a, a centralized management of the process, right, everyone had to become a financial planning, retirement planning expert to figure out how much to save, how to allocate, how much to spend, and everything else. And it's not necessarily the most efficient way to help people prepare for retirement when, when it's easier to accommodate that and use risk pooling as part of that process through a traditional company pension. But there's um, definitely some trade-offs when you're thinking about uh, defined benefits, right? And uh, the risks that are imposed on whoever is promising that particular defined benefit. So I guess, would you be able to steel man the argument as to why uh, defined contribution would be preferable to defined benefit? I, I'm, I'm just, I, I'd like to hear the steel man on, on both sides of that argument before mm -hmm. we jump into your own. Yeah, well, the advantages of defined contribution is just one, it, it's more portable so that if you're switching employers, it's much easier to take your assets with you and 
defined benefit pensions could really discourage or really force people to stay at the same job because the pension might really ratchet up in the final years before retirement. So that gives people a lot more flexibility and freedom. And of course, just uh, being able to manage their own assets, make decisions that could be different from what the pension fund would have done uh, could be valuable for some people. So that would be the, the main arguments in favor of defined contribution. Okay. Are there any jurisdictions you... around the world of, that have sort of solved this problem so that they've, they have a system set up that allows for that labor dynamism, right? So you can change jobs and you've got that flexibility um, but that also does a good job of preserving that longevity pooling and um, sets it up so that the majority of assets are largely guided by professionals rather than individuals? Well, even Social Security, to some extent, is allows for that portability. portability. So, mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of countries mm-hmm. do have a nationalized pension system like Social Security, but unlike Social Security may invest in a more globally diversified type of portfolio rather than the special issue treasury bonds that social security uses. But yeah, a broader public pension system would be more common in other countries and and can give you those features that a private employer-based defined benefit pension can't. Right. Are there any countries that come to mind that that you think are are sort of uh, on the uh, more optimal side of the uh, retirement approach? Well, I I think maybe the U.S. is somewhat unique in that so much risk is placed on the individual rather than being pooled more collectively. So in other countries, you don't necessarily have as much need for this retirement income planning because you're not necessarily exposed to long-term care shocks. You're not necessarily exposed to healthcare spending shocks. Uh, you're not necessarily forced to depend on the stock market to fund your retirement because you do have a, a larger collectively pooled pension system. So in that regard, yeah, m- many countries may actually have a, <laughs> a lessons that we could learn uh, in the United States to, about how to structure uh, a pension. And, and a it's a good point. Company. It's not just the how you structure the pension itself, but also how you structure sort of the broader social safety net to support people at different stages of life and stuff, I guess, that, um, that make quite a difference. Um, we sort of skipped over this idea of longevity pooling um, because we're all familiar with it, but I do think it is worth maybe explaining what that is for people who aren't familiar and just how large a benefit longevity pooling can provide in the right type of structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if I'm an individual planning for my retirement, maybe I'm 65 now, I don't know if I'm going to live to be 67 or if I'm going to live to be 97. And so if I have to self-manage that longevity risk, it pushes me to act more like I might live to 97, which means I have to spend a lot less to make sure I can stretch my assets out. But what risk pooling can do and what longevity pooling does is some people won't live as long, some people will live longer. But when you pool that risk collectively, Everyone can spend like they'll live to their life expectancies, which may be in, like, say, age 85 in this case. Uh, no matter how long you end up living, you get to spend as though you live to age 85. And that can allow you to spend a lot more uh, than you might be able to spend were you to live to age 97 and have to, or at least 
behave as though you might live to age 97. And then the longer you end up living, the more expensive your retirement becomes, the shorter your retirement is, unfortunately, it's, but it's also less expensive to fund that retirement. And so that longevity pooling just helps calibrate. Everyone can spend like they're gonna live to their life expectancies rather than being worried, what if I do live? to a much more advanced age. And if I'm worried about outliving my money, it, it just lowers my potential lifestyle. And how does that square with the uh, iron law of uh, retirement? Uh, it was something that I, I saw posted on your Twitter feed uh, recently, and you're supposed to pick oh. two out of three variables. Uh, one is risky asset allocation, the other one being low probability of running out of assets, and then the smooth standard of living would be the third one. And you're only able to pick two out of three, one, uh, two out of the three, uh, in, in order to sort of fulfill that law. Is that yeah, I think I, I saw that at a conference and took a picture of the slide. It was a neat way to express it, but it's expressing this idea that. If you want to have steady spending in retirement, uh, it's hard to do that with a volatile investment portfolio. If you want to have a, like an upside potential in a volatile investment portfolio, you might need to think about having flexible spending in retirement, especially if you also want a high probability of not outliving your assets. So it's, it's this matter of if you want a high probability of success and you want stable spending and you want upside potential, it's hard to get all three without just saying, okay, I have to spend at a very low level. And that's where if you can sacrifice one of those <laughs> options, it can create a much more efficient and uh, higher level of spending throughout retirement. It's just more dangerous. So this is really interesting actually to me because I, I think a lot of people would find this a little bit counterintuitive if they, if they took the time to sort of step into the problem, right? So one would think that shooting for high returns means you're invest, you know, so you're investing in a higher expected return portfolio, then that should allow you to both have higher expending in retirement and leave a larger legacy. Um, on average. So, but on, av on average. So, so what, is the, what is the missing variable here to connect the dots for people? Well, so we don't, like many times if people start talking about running a financial plan with software and talking about a probability of success, they're not probably targeting a 50% chance for success. They might target, say, a 90% chance for success. And that's where we're no longer talking about the averages. We have to talk about what ultimately becomes a scenario where markets don't do as well. And with retirement, there's this idea of sequence of returns risk, where if I'm spending from my assets and the market's declining, I have to sell a bigger share of what's left to meet my spending obligation. And that digs a hole for my portfolio that becomes difficult to recover from. And so even if, if you're, we're talking about a 30-year long retirement, even if the average market return was reasonable over those 30 years, if you get a bad sequence at the start of retirement and then later markets recover, your portfolio doesn't recover and you might end up facing a very a much lower sustainable level of spending than would have been implied by that average market return. So that's kind of the reality people face in terms of dealing with the real world volatility of markets in retirement. We use a, um, a case study all the time that sort of illustrates this. So you, you can imagine, um, you know, the, the period in, let's say the Dow Jones and let's, you know, the period from 1975 to, to 2016, so 30 years. And 
um, it had exactly 8% average return, right? And if you were to um, dis distribute 5% of your portfolio, so let's say you started with a million dollars in 1975 and you take out 5% a year and um, then you see when you run out of money, right? So keep in mind that over that full time period, the market averaged 8% a year. Well, if you do that, then you run out of money after 14 years. And, but if you just reverse the returns, so in other words, you know, it's like you started in 2016, December 2016, and then the second month was November 2016, and the next month was October 2016. So you're just running the clock backwards over the exact same period. So obviously you have the exact same returns, just in a completely different order. Then now you've got the early returns that, the, the, the strong returns come early mm -hmm. and you never run out of money. And in fact, you, you, you end up with a $3 million legacy yeah. <laughs> at the end, right? So exactly the same return, just in a different order can, can lead to just profoundly different outcomes, right? And I think that this is a, a time something weighted. that people don't intuit very naturally. Time-weighted versus money-weighted returns, right? And I think this is yep. something that we've touched on this uh, podcast many times. But I, I noticed that you've written something uh, that maybe five years would be the most critical. The first five years of retirement are, are the most critical for a portfolio. So I'm curious as to why that exact date. There's a, is there a range around that? And why are those first five years the most critical? Yeah, yeah. Like, well, like you said, with time-weighted returns, the, there is no sequence risk. It's just I'm investing a lump sum and watching it grow. But whenever there's cash flows, and, and so there is pre-retirement sequence risk. If I'm saving for retirement, market returns early in my career don't impact much. I haven't saved that much yet. But by that last year before I retire, that return is impacting all the contributions I made throughout my career at that point. So the market returns just before retirement are quite important. But then once I retire and switch to spending from my assets, that also further pushes up the importance of those early retirement years. And, and so it, it maybe like the five years before retirement and then the first five to 10 years after retirement are the most important years in terms of impacting the success of your financial plan over your lifetime. And, and that's the idea of the lifetime sequence of returns risk. I've estimated, for example, that if, if you had a 30-year retirement, and, and so the first 10 years, the kind of one-third of that retirement length, the, the market performance in those first 10 years will explain 80% of, did you spend, were you able to spend a lot or a little in that retirement? It, what happens later on hardly has an impact. It's really pushed in to, to matter with those just before and just after retirement. It's the size well, like, of the portfolio at exactly. that period that ultimately mm -hmm. yeah. matters, right? It, it, size does matter in this case. Yeah, that's <laughs> the, the portfolio size effect. Of, <laughs> it, it's, so if when you're just starting your career, maybe you've saved $10,000 and the market drops 50%, you've lost $5,000. Later, as you get closer to retirement, if you're at a million dollars and the market dropped 50%, uh, you've lost $500,000 in one year. And it may have taken you 25 years to have accumulated that amount in the first place. So that's that's that portfolio size effect where the absolute uh, wealth exposure is, is much greater in those years around the retirement date when when you're 
generally will have the most assets of your career at that point. One of the most important insights over the last 25 years for me came from um, a a paper that Moshe Malevsky wrote where he showed that the um, probability of success or probability, in other words, the probability of running out of money before, before you pass away is not just a function of expected returns, but also of volatility. So for example, mm-hmm. if you can generate a, a 5% real at 10% volatility, your probability of retirement sex is success is actually very materially higher than if you have to generate um, that save five five percent real at a fifteen or twenty percent volatility, right? And oh, yeah. mm-hmm. plugging that into the inverse gamma function, and and then you know just seeing exactly how sensitive the probability of success or probability of failure are in that. So I'm just wondering, do you account for that explicitly in your modeling, or does it sort of emerge naturally from the type the Monte Carlo or simulation based? Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, frameworks it, that it, you use. Mm-hmm. It will emerge naturally. It's right. Higher return definitely increases the withdrawal rate. Lower volatility for a given return also helps to increase the the withdrawal rate. And so you could even have a lower return, but with volatility also lessens by enough, a lower return may be still a higher overall withdrawal rate for a given probability of success. And, and yeah, Monte Carlo would pick up the, what Moshe Molesky did that's really interesting is just create a whole mathematical framework around that where you can use equations. <laughs> Monte Carlo isn't plugging things into those equations, but it's going to give you an answer that's materially, materially close to what those equations would have given you. Yeah, absolutely. And the benefit of Monte Carlo and, and bootstrap based methods is that you can then also introduce um, you know, a, a standard error of the mean or um, different assumptions about the skewness or higher moments of the return distribution and, and all of these other um, mm-hmm. effects that we know are better to approximate the true distribution of returns in financial markets, which we all know are, uh, are not well approximated by a normal distribution. So uh, probability adjusted considerations, I guess we can, we, we can summarize. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm curious as to the main motivation for your book? I mean, obviously you're passionate about the theme. Were there any particular myths that you were looking to debunk? Was there, or are there a lot of misconceptions that you see in how people approach retirement that you wanted to address in this book? Yeah, maybe like the, really the underlying theme of the retirement planning guidebook and so much of what I've done, even going back to the early days where I used to talk about how there, there's two schools of thought for retirement. It's just, you could ask these really basic questions and depending who you ask the question to, you could get a completely different answer. And ultimately, over time, just coming to appreciate that the different perspectives are all reasonable, but it, people are wired differently. And, and so you may not just fundamentally think about matters in the same way as someone else. And so if you can then find a strategy that's more adapted to the, the way you think about the world, that could make you more comfortable to then actually stick with that strategy and and stay the course and not panic and so forth. And then for you, that becomes a better strategy because it's something that you're comfortable with and can stick with. And in that regard, 
you know, there's a lot of people who just say all you need is an investment portfolio, the stocks for the long run, stocks will fund a higher level of spending, you'll be fine. That works for some people. Other people actually will be more comfortable with like an annuity based approach where you build a floor of protected lifetime income to cover your basics. And then that can give you the comfort to, to invest the rest more aggressively and still have that upside component as well. And it's really just a matter of, of helping people sort out and understand what approach is going to work best for them. And, and that's definitely one of the, the misconceptions. I, I kind of got my career started on this idea that what's known as the 4% rule uh, probably Bingo. really oversimplifies too many factors to be of much practical use. <laughs> and there are other perspectives that are also viable at the same time. Yeah, Bill Bingen's 4% rule. Um, so uh, this is a good way or a good time to maybe segue into some of these approaches. I mean, I remember um, a few years ago when I was spending a lot of time on this, um, there seemed to be a consensus that optimizing for safe withdrawal rate was a reasonable way to um, approach the problem. But I know that there's been a lot of work over the last decade or so in terms of um, more comprehensive utility functions and, and you know, just general ways to uh, approach optimal retirement spending. You've, you've sort of touched on a few of them, but is there a natural kind of continuum that would allow people to sort of help, help people to understand um, some of the key differences between the thinking of the different approaches? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so this, actually a research study I did with Alex Margia was this idea of the retirement income style awareness or RISA where we just, we read as much as we could about retirement to see how people were explaining different trade-offs or, or issues where you had to make a decision, wrote a bunch of questions around that, tested out to see what was important. And we found that these two primary factors help to explain how someone approaches retirement income. The first is, uh, I, we call them probability-based versus safety-first. Probability-based is I'm comfortable relying on the risk premium from the markets to fund a higher level of spending in retirement. Safety first is, you know, I'd really, when it comes to my basic spending, I want some sort of contractual protection to cover what I'm doing. I don't want to be dependent on the market to cover my core retirement spending. And then the other factor is optionality versus commitment. Optionality is I want to keep my options open as much as possible to have as much flexibility to make changes, to respond to new situations and so forth. Commitment is if I can find a strategy that will solve for my lifetime need, I'd rather commit to that and to some extent take it off my to-do list and not have to be as worried about this. And so we put those on a matrix, probability based on the right, safety first on the left, optionality on top, commitment on the bottom. That gives you four quadrants that actually, the, the really interesting part of this for me was how well it explains the different retirement styles out there. So if you're probability-based and optionality-oriented, that we call that total return, that's like the 4% rule is a starting point. That's, I just want to use a diversified portfolio and take distributions from that for, to cover my retirement. The other contrasting strategy would be if I'm safety-first and commitment-oriented, that's I want contractual protections and I'm comfortable committing to a strategy, that's describing the idea of a building a protected lifetime income floor with maybe a simple income annuity or some other type of fixed annuity, and then investing on top of that for more discretionary types of goals. Then, And those are the two more common quadrants because there is a, a correlation. 
if you're more probability based, you tend to also be optionality oriented. If you're safety first, you tend to be more commitment oriented. So we got two other quadrants though that are hybrids or they're like not natural. And it's really interesting too to see how those strategies have evolved as being more behavioral in nature. So if you're safety first and optionality oriented, that's time segmentation or bucketing that's developed since the 1980s. This approach that says, rather than just using a total return investing portfolio, let's use bonds to cover kind of short-term expenses. And then we'll use stocks to cover long-term expenses. And then psychologically, we have this framework to say, well, if the market goes down, I, I don't have to sell stocks for a few years and I hope stocks will recover and I'll be fine. And, and so that's time segmentation. And then the other quadrant would be probability-based. I'm comfortable relying on the market, but commitment-oriented. I, I also like to commit to a strategy. And, and so since the 1990s, that's this idea of a, a variable annuity with a guaranteed lifetime withdrawal benefit where you can have upside investing exposure, step up opportunities, but still have a downside floor that may be less than uh, an income annuity. But uh, since you are more comfortable with the markets anyway, you might have more of a feeling that I will get some of those step ups and be better off that way while still committing to a strategy and having a lifetime income protection. And so that's, we call that risk wrap. And that's now four core retirement strategies. It just, before they talked about three, it's like total return, time segmentation, and then flooring or essential versus discretionary. And we just split that into two between income protection and risk wrap, depending on the, the type of protected income flooring that one chooses. That's really Do you have a sense of, <laughs> in terms of the proportion of people, I don't know if you've done any work or if you have any data on those that are sort of the more traditional two quadrants where they're uh, probability weighted and uh, optionality oriented mm -hmm. or uh, safe base and commitment, and then what percentage might be uh, the more hybrid, maybe a percentage that didn't really understand the question or doesn't really understand the implications <laughs> of that or, or, or people that are actually just have a, a, a different wiring when it comes to their mm -hmm. uh, asset allocation. Yeah, we've been able to repeat, uh, to repeat the study a number of times now with a bunch of different groups. First, it was not a representative sample. It was readers of retirement researcher who tend to be more sophisticated, do-it-yourself type investors. But then we did do a nationally representative study through the Alliance for Lifetime Income. And it, we were worried, are people going to understand the questions? <laughs> the retirement research community could. Uh, but no, the, the general public could too, because the way they answered the questions consistently. And if they didn't understand the questions, we wouldn't have seen, they would have, there'd be more randomness in the way people answered. And, and so what repeatedly we tend to find with a couple other studies as well is around a third of the population seems to resonate best with the total return approach, which is the, the diversified investment portfolio um, as the starting point for retirement income. About a third or maybe slightly more than a third uh, is income protection. And then somewhere around like 15, 16, 17, 18% in that range would be both the uh, time segmentation and the risk wrap. And that's pretty consistent. There's a, and it also holds across age groups, across a bunch of different demographic factors. The only demographic factors or, or broader socioeconomic factors we see where there can be some difference is women do tend to tilt more towards income protection, men towards total return. 
And then people with higher net worths do also tend to tilt towards total return um, versus income protection. Right. Well, that which makes aligns because, with some of the. Well, yeah, because I mean, obviously, if you've got, if you have more wealth, then a negative market outcome would still leave you with enough to sustain. Right. So it's, I was in this kind of segues nicely into what I, what I think is also super critical. And that is the, the constraints on the ability for safe choices to deliver the required returns. Right. I mean, we certainly just went through a long period where the returns on annuities or, you know, the returns on safety first type approaches were so low that it made it, it made it a much harder decision to lock in at such low rates, right? Um, so, you know, how do you find that people balance off this preference for safety first um, and optionality against the constraint of, you know, we're just in a super low, low return environment for safe investments and perhaps for all investments. So it seems to me that, that there'd be a tension there. Yeah, well, ultimately, like, there's three basic ways you could fund retirement. First would be you could just use bonds as a baseline and that's not going to support a lot of spending. So if you want to spend more than bonds, then you've got these two options. You've got the, the risk premium idea, the probability-based rely on the markets, diversified portfolio. And then you've got the risk pooling, the longevity pooling idea of uh, an annuity can provide a higher spending level that relative to bonds that can actually be quite competitive with the stock market. And so it's not that either one's necessarily superior to the other. It's, and it's not that the annuity or, or safety first approach doesn't use any investments, but it's, it's a different way of a viable strategy of, of building a floor in a manner that these different approaches can be competitive with each other. It, it's interesting too, that it does as best as we can tell, seem like these retirement styles are, personality characteristics that aren't just responding to changes in the market and so forth. We just recently with a, a large asset manager conducted the, the RISA study again, and we added another interesting question there that was really neat to see. The question was just asking people, what do you expect the stock market to do over the next 10 years with a range of answers from less than 0% average returns to more than 15% average returns. Now, someone might think, total returns as a style would be correlated with a higher stock market return expectation. We did not see that at all. There's no relation. If you could be income protection and still think the stock market's going to do 15%, you could be total returns and think the stock market's going to do 0%. It's, there's not a correlation between retirement styles and what people believe the markets will do in the future. So I, I think that it's just, it's, it's a personality characteristic. It's just how somebody's wired about how they think about the world. And it's not going to necessarily fluctuate based on what's been happening in the markets or based on where interest rates are and so forth. What about FOMO? <laughs> like what if I mean, you've got somebody who prefers safety first and they lock in, is there ever a fear that their friend group that has a different personality and didn't lock in and therefore takes advantage of, of, the optionality and potential upside in, in a more risky portfolio may just leave them behind? 
I mean, I know that like this is relative status is a, an extremely powerful mm -hmm. motivator in many dimensions of life. So I just wonder whether that enters into people's decision-making. I suppose that could be an issue, but part of it too is someone who's safety first might not necessarily have been using a high stock allocation as the alternative. And actually by building that protected income floor, then they may feel more comfortable. I usually talk about annuities, treating them as an alternative to bonds, not as an alternative to stocks. So an income protection approach doesn't necessarily require less stock holdings than a total return approach. And if that sort of thinking resonates, uh, you're not necessarily getting into the scenario where you have less upside exposure or less market return exposure when you use a, a income protection or a, a safety first type of strategy. Right. So how about a, a hybrid, a hybrid approach that might take these building blocks and say, I want to take a two-thirds approach where I'm guaranteeing minimum amount that will cover my expenses, but that I, I want to retain some optionality and, and, and you know address some of the FOMO or some of the uh, upside that I want to be able to capture. Uh, you know, if, if we are coming into a, a equity bull market, which in the in, in, at present day doesn't seem like the most uh, uh, you know a high probability type of event, but is that something that you've come across? Do you do you, do you see that happening a lot, or do people tend to stick to one approach or the other? Well, to be clear, like the income protection approach is not annuities only. It's first get the protected lifetime income floor and then invest on top of that. So to some extent, it is the hybrid approach. It would be something like total returns is only using investments, uh, but the others are well, income protection or risk graph would be use the floor and that, but that's not going to take the entire asset base. No one should be putting all their assets, locking that up into some annuity structure. So then you, you also have the investment piece on top of that. Gotcha. Why do you think so few people seek to take advantage of longevity pooling? Well, there could be a number of issues that, that get involved there. There is this idea of the annuity puzzle, which is came from the academic world of why don't people use commercial annuities more often than they do? I mean, different factors. Part of it, just social security is an annuity. And like we were talking about at the beginning of the show, a traditional company pension is an annuity. So at least for retirees today who still may have traditional company pensions, they may already have enough annuity income between social security and the pension. They don't necessarily need a commercial annuity. Beyond that, I think uh, part of the trouble, the, just with the way the US system evolved, annuities started to get just like a tax deferral tool and, and create confusion. Like when I was living in Japan, somebody, a Japanese person asked me, why does the English language have these two different words, annuity and pension? Like in Japanese, there's just one word to represent those concepts. And I had to think about that. And, and my only guess could be that because annuities kind of went down this path of being used as a tax deferral tool and not for the original concept was to provide a stream of contractually protected income, not necessarily over a lifetime, but just a contractually protected income stream. So it kind of moved away from that original meaning. And that's in that context became more complicated, uh, confusing. There's now many different types of annuities with many different types of features that, that get, 
I, I think partly the insurance world is making things too complicated and they do that to try to get some competitive advantage of how they can market their annuity as having some feature, but you have to then really dive in and understand, okay, they made one lever look more attractive. What did that do to the other levers and, <laughs> and how does the overall performance look? And so that just leads to, to issues as well. There's been like, different sales practices that haven't always been on the up and up. And so it's just created a tough road along the way. And th those are some of the factors that uh, help to explain why, uh, at least why academics are surprised that people don't use <laughs> annuities more often than they do. Well, one of the things that so I always felt was that the, the people... Um, so how does somebody who does want to preserve optionality or, or does want to rely on risk premia to deliver a higher income and, and lifestyle and potential legacy, how do you get that and, and lock in with the, with the traditional annuity? I guess that your answer there would be that a variable annuity addresses many of those preferences. It could at the, the psychological level, but the variable annuity is more of a behavioral concept because you a simple income annuity plus stocks is probably a more efficient way to do what a variable annuity can do. Yes, but then you're, that not, becomes, you're not taking advantage of the risk pooling, like the, mor the mortality pooling the, in, the, in the equity allocation, right? So you're only really taking advantage of that in the, in the sleeve that's allocated to the annuities, I think, right? Unless I'm missing... Mm -hmm. Oh, no, yeah, yeah. So the income annuity mm -hmm. or a variable annuity with a living benefit attached to it, both give you the, the risk pooling element. Because the way the variable annuity works is if you deplete the underlying asset base, then that living benefit that you've been paying for kicks in and you enter the settlement phase where it will continue to pay the promised amount of annual spending for the, the rest of your life, no matter how long you live at that point. So it, uh, the variable annuity with a living benefit without annuitizing the contract does give you that same sort of longevity pooling as a traditional simple income annuity, but less so for the most part because it has all these other features with liquidity and with the ability to invest in sub accounts and so forth. Right, gotcha. I'm trying you to mention- Sorry, go ahead, Richard, while we're still, yeah. No, I was just curious. I wanted to pull on a thread uh, that he mentioned earlier about annuity being associated with the tax benefits that one gets. And in, 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 in Japan, there is no differentiation, which is why it's the same term for, for pension and annuity. Uh, you wrote a piece a while back on navigating taxes during retirement. And different tax treatments and incentives will nudge investors of different jurisdictions, different countries in certain directions and almost force them to take certain approaches because uh, it's just more beneficial to them net net. And I'm wondering, can individuals reasonably be expected to navigate the, the, the tax <laughs> maze tax that is, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's such a complex topic for, for any aspect of, of one's financial life, not just retirement, but just anything at all. So I'm, I'm wondering how you think about uh, uh, both the, the nudgings and incentives that are created by taxes and also how individuals might, might go about doing that on their own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the longest chapter of the Retirement Planning Guidebook is on the tax planning for efficient retirement distributions, because at least in the U.S., there's so many nonlinearities in the tax code. And the social security taxation is a big one. 
they could hardly think of a more difficult way to design something than how they designed the framework of how much of your social security benefit will be taxed. And you can think you may be in the, well, these days, the 12 or the 22% tax bracket, but it turns out that when you take another dollar out of your IRA, it's also pushing another 85 cents of your social security benefit to be taxed. Uh, you may be in the 40 or 50% marginal, you may be paying a, a marginal tax rate much higher than you had imagined. And, and that's a big one of many different examples where having tax efficiency and, and planning for tax efficiency in retirement can be a huge advantage. Uh, it can be dangerous to have too much in a tax deferred account when required minimum distributions kick in and force you to take out those funds and pay taxes on them. That not just the taxes on those funds, but how that interacts with all these other factors or with higher Medicare premiums and everything else. So that's why the longest chapter in the uh, retirement planning guidebook is how to think through these issues and start to structure. And it becomes, so I don't know if the, the audience is primarily in the US, I don't know how much I should focus on the primarily US yes. tax code. But, so yeah, Roth conversion in the United States, you have the Roth IRA, which is you pay taxes beforehand, money comes out tax-free. And so strategically converting from a tax deferred IRA into a Roth IRA, especially before social security begins, can have a huge impact on the sustainability of your retirement funds. And then annuities kind of was the lead into that question too. They are different types of annuities have different types of taxation that you can also start to think about how that might help the plan as well uh, outside of retirement accounts. Simple income annuities give you the exclusion ratio, which is just a portion of the payment is taxable until about your life expectancy when it all becomes taxable because a portion was the return of your principal. Uh, deferred annuities get more complicated. They have the last in first out tax treatment. So any gains come out first and then your premium. And then if the premium has gone and you have lifetime income protections, that would all be taxable as well. So you can think about how those tax flows might impact your plan as well and, and think about how to strategically do Roth conversions around that. So it does get quite complicated, but increasingly people are developing software to help with planning around this. And, and like I said, it's the case study I use in the book. I think just having, well, an efficient social security and tax distribution strategy added like six years to the longevity of their portfolio uh, in the example I looked at. That's gargantuan. Wow. That's, that's enormous. Um, for, for a, like a typical investor who says I want to just lean on risk premia and invest in, say, a 60-40 portfolio um, versus an investor who says, I want to invest in a pooled product that invests in a 60-40 portfolio. Do you have any sort of estimate of the, of the, the pickup in distributions that one might expect from just the risk pooling step of, of that? Um, and do you have any estimates of that, just how powerful that is? <clears throat> well, ultimately, like it will depend on, on, yeah, over 30 years, it, it depends. <laughs> so it's, it's ultimately going to be, what's the probability that that unprotected 64 portfolio would deplete 
And then with the annuity structure, there's going to be a fee drag that would cause the underlying account balance to deplete a, a couple of years before the unprotected portfolio. But then that lifetime income kicks in. And so it becomes more a matter of like, what are the probabilities that you would have depleted your unprotected portfolio and benefited from the uh, annuity? And I've done those types of simulations before. I, like off the top of my head, it's hard to like think of specific numbers to say for it, but it's not insubstantial that if you have a 30 year long retirement, there's a reasonable chance that you will outlive your investment portfolio. And therefore the annuity structure would be a benefit at that point. Yeah. So where I was going with this was, are you familiar with the idea of the Tontine that um, uh -huh. yeah, Dr. Molesky has been, um, been proposing and they're launching a product in Canada that mm -hmm. has many of the features of a traditional tontine, um, but then allows the underlying assets to be invested in a variety mm -hmm. of different asset allocation methods. Um, so yeah, so if you're well-versed in the idea of the tontine, maybe give people a, a brief explanation of what that is. And then I'd love to hear your thoughts on the benefits and drawbacks. Yeah, yeah. So Tantine's a way to provide these longevity pooling credits without having to use an insurance company as an intermediary. You just need some manager of the, the funds to keep track of who all the participants are and to keep track of whether they're alive. But the basic idea is you bring together a group of people, they make their payments and the pay premiums into this pool, and then someone invests that. And then every year, the, the distributions coming off of that portfolio, the interest and dividends, and also that may be structured to also spend down principal over time as well, like a, a, an individual's systematic withdrawal strategy. But that those proceeds get shared among those who are still alive. And so not only do you get the investment return, but as you live longer, you get the uh, longevity credits as well that become part of that. Uh, if, to try to make up a very simple example, you know, you, we can, of course you need more than five people in real life, but say five people each contribute $100. You've got $500 pooled, give it a 5% a return. So that would be $25. And so the, if, no, if all five of those people lived, the, they would each get $5 of that return if we're not spending on principle as well. If one of those people passed away, you're now splitting that $25 yield between the four remaining survivors. And that's the structure where 25 divided by four is a bigger number. <laughs> Never can do math. Like six, six dollars. Six and a quarter. Yeah, you're getting six and a quarter from it instead of five from it. And that's the, the longevity credit that becomes part of that. Now, for a long time, tantines were very popular in the US in like the 19th century and before they became illegal. And now they became, there's many TV shows and movies that treat the tantine as a, a winner takes all type of thing where you have a pool of people, the last survivor gets everything. And so that leads to a lot of intrigue and murder mysteries and whatnot. In real life, that's not how a tontine works. It's, it's not going to be winner takes all. And so you're not going to have that incentive to seek out the other members of that pool and, and knock them off. But uh, Is it, there a level of anonymity there that yeah, uh, sort of that creates a, a separation and uh, a safety, an additional safety for, for, for the members? 
Yeah, I mean, well, partly a lot of times in the past, these were structured through maybe a particular type of employer, like fireman's tontine or something like that. And so it may not be 100% anonymous, but at least there's not, the way it's designed, there's not going to be a, a financial incentive to worry about who the other people in that pool are and trying to do something to them. So and, why were they trying to summarize? <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Why were they made illegal? Probably good lobbying from the insurance uh, companies. That may, may very well be part of it since, right, like you don't need the insurance company to manage that risk pool. Now in the U.S., the insurance company is the only one able to provide a longevity credit. So naturally, they don't want an asset manager introducing a tontine that can do the same thing. So I, I've got to imagine that would be part of it. And beyond that, I don't know if there was like maybe some hint of truth in what happened with some of these TV shows and whatnot that led to a, a crackdown at one point. I, I don't know the right, whole the murder mystery. It, but, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I can see. So I guess the summary the fireman one is a really good example, right? If if you're like if it's the San Diego Fire Department tontine, and so you know you know who the people are that are members of the tontine, then it certainly is plausible for somebody to start picking off other firemen, right? I mean, like in a, or if it's a tontine set up for a town in the late 1800s or something, and the town's got 50,000 people in it, like you can see that if you've got one or two degrees of separation, that it's possible to corrupt the intent of the tontine through nefarious act mm -hmm. activities, right? But in a modern but you, you context, can, it's hard to yeah. see how that might work. And you also put on some restriction that once the remaining number of survivors falls below a certain level, you stop giving those <laughs> longevity credits so that you don't have that sort of incentive. I mean, they can be designed to uh, not have any of these concerns. So essentially well, the difference between a taunting and an annuity is just that the upside is retained either by the members of the pool or by the insurance provider, right? So essentially the, the, the taunting just allows for bigger upside for, for those that are participating in the pool. Yeah, you can design the investment strategy you want. And also like with, with an annuity, the insurance company is taking on the longevity risk that if suddenly people start living longer than you anticipated, they still have to pay you what they promised to pay you. Whereas with the taunting, I'm now bearing some of that longevity risk because if, if people suddenly all start living longer, then maybe the actuary thought, well, that's just going to reduce the payments everyone in that pool's receiving. And so you, you are bearing some of the, you've got some investment risk, you've got some longevity risk uh, as part of the product, but still that, that could be an, an attractive solution for a lot of people. Well, and right. if it's the is autonomous. Then Tontine can buy a longevity swap and offset that longevity risk as well, right? The way that you know an insurance insurance company is mm -hmm. trading longevity swaps. That how they that's how they hedge their that systemic risk of maybe there's a major innovation would cure cancer, we cure, cure heart disease, and people start living an extra 20, 30 years. And um, obviously that's a major risk for for insurance companies. Um, so they buy mm -hmm. these longevity swaps, right? And they also just can hedge that sum up with life insurance because if, if people suddenly start living longer, their life insurance claims will go down, but their annuity claims will go up. And so there's right. a, a natural hedge diversification there. there. That's true. That's a good point. It just seems like, 
I mean, if it's, it's purely regulatory capture by the insurance industry, burdens of a ton team as an alternative for, I mean, it just seems like it has all of the characteristics you, you'd want, right? You can, you can set up, you can include, you know, diversify mortality the way you want by, you know, using mm-hmm. a maximum number of people in any different state or city or part of the country or whatever. So you're sort of diversifying the potential for natural disaster risk or, you know, that type of thing. Um, buy a longevity swap. You're cutting out the middleman of the insurance company. Set up the risk profile the way you want. Um, I struggle to see the downside, honestly. I mean, then obviously uh-huh. people's natural proclivity versus security. Yeah, tantines, they've, they're an attractive idea, and a lot of people have explored how to reintroduce them. And there's, there's been some efforts over the years and there's a lot of writing on it. And it, this, what, what you talked about now with what Moshe Molesky is doing in Canada, um, still in Canada, not in the United States. But yeah, if, if that has success, maybe at some point we'll, we'll start to see those same developments in the U.S. It definitely has a lot of attractive features. It's kind of the closest annuity type idea would just be something like an immediate variable annuity, which in practice are very rare. Um, but uh it's the same basic structure where you have a guaranteed lifetime income, but you just don't really know in advance exactly how much it's going to be. It can fluctuate up and down uh, depending on market performance. Gotcha. We talked a lot about behavioral considerations and uh, uh, just the, the different frameworks that one might uh, take take into consideration and, and approach, but I'm wondering if you might get in a little bit into the specifics on asset allocation and particularly holding cash, in a portfolio, I mean, it, it, it is definitely, I would imagine, uh, uh, considered in the different approaches that you mentioned, the the annuities and the, the the different hybrid allocations that you might take. But how do you think about the timing of increasing or decreasing uh, how much cash you're holding as a percentage of the portfolio, depending on market dynamics or just uh, personal preferences? Mm-hmm. So the asset allocation, it's kind of interesting how when you talk about safe withdrawal rates, asset allocation doesn't matter a whole lot. There's a whole range of, of asset allocations that give you kind of the same sort of safe withdrawal rate. Uh, now, the more aggressive you are, the more upside potential there is, of course. But yeah, with cash, uh, cash is something you might think about more with like a time segmentation approach. Or if you're just using it as a buffer asset, which is this idea of I I may have cash outside of my portfolio that I don't really treat as part of the portfolio, but that I may use as a temporary spending resource during times of market volatility so that I'm not locking in sequence risk and selling portfolio assets at a loss. And in that regard, so there are other buffer assets as well, but if you're primarily thinking about cash as your buffer asset, People might want to have a year or two of spending or, or, or more <laughs> in cash is just sort of that backdrop protection to help preserve their investment portfolio during times of market volatility. And how do you think about sort of the current environment that we're in, given that, it, that uh, <laughs> the answer is so, so sort of expanded to today and, and, and how, how you might incorporate sort of the... Uh, higher level of uncertainty and the wider uh, 
probability cone that we might be facing currently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so markets are down dramatically in, in 2022. And as we record, it's been another really bad day in the market. So that does trigger danger for recent retirees because it's the whole idea. The sequence of returns risk is no longer an abstract concept. Your stocks may be down more than 20%. Your bonds may be down more than 20%. And at this point, we 30% might be something that's coming into play as a potential downturn. So that's where if you have uh, some other mechanism, whether that is reduced spending, whether that is spend from cash or some other buffer asset like a, a reverse mortgage or cash value of life insurance. Those are really the, the three buffer assets. Something that can help preserve you from not having to dip into your portfolio at, at this type of time is going to be very important for retirees right now, especially and those are just the nominal losses and with inflation as well. Uh, people who retired, say, on January 1st, 2022, this is not a great time to be spending from their investment nest eggs in retirement. How yeah, do you think about absolutely. inflation then, Wade, from a you know, um, hedging risk perspective for retirees? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so inflation, it had been low for so long that when everyone was talking about sequence of returns risk, no, there was no thought around this kind of, there's also this sequence of inflation risk. And it's, mm -hmm. suppose there's inflation is 10% this year and then 0% for, the for the rest of retirement. Nonetheless, that permanently raises the cost of living by 10% for that entire retirement because it, it's mm -hmm. the higher price level that happens this year remains in the future. If inflation's low now and picks up later in retirement, it, there's this sequence of inflation risk it, because inflation later on doesn't have as big of impact. Inflation now has a much bigger impact and to the extent that inflation does seem to be correlated with market returns in a negative manner, higher inflation in the short run tends to be associated with losses on stocks and bonds, or at least a negative correlation there. The, the real returns can be lower. And if you're entering into retirement, it's like this triple whammy of high inflation, bond losses, stock losses, it does create strains on a investment-based retirement strategy. So yeah, so how does that square that for me with your assertion that asset allocation doesn't have a very large impact on um, you know, safe withdrawal rate outcomes, right? Um, That's mm -hmm. in, in any sort of historical data or Monte Carlo simulation, whether you used 40% stocks or 80% stocks, it's usually the downside sustainable spending level for a given probability of success doesn't change all that much. That's what I meant by the uh, asset allocation. How gotcha. far back and does this data go? Uh, you see this sort of phenomenon. I mean, Bill Bengen's study was on the, the Morningstar data back to 1926. But I've even, the first study I did in this area was with global returns data for 20 different countries going back to 1900. See the same sort of phenomenon there. You generally can see it with any Monte Carlo simulation of a retirement strategy as well. That it's it's a pretty persistent type of phenomenon that <laughs> the and it's because you're riding along these curves that we were talking about this earlier. The safe withdrawal rate depends on both the volatility and the return. And so with the idea that a higher return is associated with more volatility, 
you ride along these isoquants of <laughs> the same sustainable withdrawal rate because you're kind of moving up in this consistent manner with higher return, higher volatility, still the same safe withdrawal rate for that uh, particular success rate that you're targeting. Yeah, I understand how that emerges from the historical data where you know only about 18 to 20% of months from say 1870, if you want to use the Schiller data, I know we can go back even further than that with um, global financial data and stuff like that, but only about 20% of months over that horizon did we experience meaningful inflation, right? So I guess the big question I think a lot of retirees are asking themselves right now is, how can I build a portfolio that maximizes my chances of positive retirement outcomes and that takes into account the kind of inflation risk that we're currently seeing? Mm -hmm. In that regard, so if total returns has to rely on, you know, stocks are going to be over the long run, the best sort of shot at keeping up with inflation and providing a positive real return. Definitely traditional bonds get decimated by inflation. Tips, of course, are another option, inflation protected bonds that now those real yields, they were negative for a long time. They're now most of the tips yield curve is over 1% real. So that could be another option to look at on the bond side. And then also if you have one of the, the other, like an income protection approach, you don't look for inflation protection through the annuity, but it might better position you so that the rest of your assets can be invested more aggressively and have a smaller distribution need because the annuity, at least in the short term, covers more of the spending. It's not going to grow with inflation, but it's at least in the short run covering more of your spending. That could help position your investments to have a better shot at growing and, and maintaining that inflation protection as well. Right. <clears throat> in your so research, the, have you looked at anything outside of just the stock bond uh, allocations for a portfolio? I mean, obviously, we are uh, alternative asset managers. We we do uh, we we manage active strategies, and so I'm wondering: Have you looked at any of those? Any type of either trend following strategies or anything that sort of serves as a diversifier to a core stock bond portfolio? Mm -hmm. So one of the early articles I wrote was acknowledging that when people read some of these studies, there's nothing they can do; they're kind of stuck with whatever was assumed by the article. So I built the framework around: you can assume whatever you want with asset classes, returns, volatilities, correlations, build your own efficient frontier. And then I made these charts that you could overlay those efficient frontiers to see what sort of sustainable withdrawal rate that could be supported and what asset allocation would give you the highest sustainable withdrawal rate. And so that does open you up to assuming whatever you want, alternative asset classes and so forth. And then at the end of the day, it's really just this function of what's the portfolio's return and volatility, assuming like bell, somewhat bell-shaped distributions, you could do the same sort of analysis with a structured return if you're using some sort of structured approach where some of the downside risk is cut off, some of the upside potential cut off and so forth. And um, was there an, oh, and, and about like changing asset allocation, I did play around with, so Schiller's CAPE ratio in the historical data actually moved quite well with helping to predict what the sustainable withdrawal rate would be and also helping to predict maybe changing the asset allocation. But ever since Schiller wrote his article on that in 1998, 
that relationship's gone away. And, and so I generally don't dabble in tactical type asset allocation for a long-term retiree. It's just go with some sort of <laughs> what's your strategic asset allocation and stick with that. Yeah, I guess we, we typically advocate for sort of an all weather approach that is some bonds, some stocks and some commodities and some tips. Um, but just with the idea that you want to have bonds for slower than expected growth and or disinflation, equities for a sort of typical low risk growth environment and commodities for a period where of, of an inflation shock um, where both stocks and bonds are kind of designed to not do so well, right? So holding equal risk in each of those three buckets then gives you the opportunity to protect against, you know, both um, negative growth shocks and positive inflation shocks, which most sort of traditional portfolios don't really uh, do well with. So that's, that's kind of where we, how we approach the problem. But, you know, I understand that your framework can accommodate our approach as well. So, which is, which is great. Um, I, we keep talking about the safe withdrawal rate as though, and obviously this is where I spend a lot of my time as well on kind of trying to annuitize or um, create a retirement stream that is analogous to what pensioners used to get, right? Where it's a fixed payment every month, maybe indexed to some inflation index. Um, but there's other ways to manage that, right? Where you can have more flexibility in your um, retirement income that responds to maybe a combination of your uh, of your age and the returns that you've experienced. Mm -hmm. um, what sort of innovations have you observed or um, seen in your own research over the last decade or so that might nudge people in one direction or another in terms of um, the benefits and trade-offs of those types of approaches? Yeah, so the academically optimal retirement strategy, at least for like most normal looking utility functions is you build that floor for the basics. And then you do like the RMD tables are an example of you spend an increasing percentage of what's left as you age to get an efficient, assuming there's not necessarily a, a legacy goal to get the most efficient right. drawdown of assets. And then you can make adjustments that like the RMD tables are actually designed to be pretty conservative. And so you're not getting to spend very much in the early retirement years. So I like to multiply them by some factor that would raise your spending early on. And then the spending percentage goes up over time, but because you're more aggressive early on, there's more of a decline in the remaining portfolio balance. So you can kind of engineer the type of average a spending stream that you might want to target. A lot of retirees do want to spend more in the early years, spend less as they get into the, it's the idea of the go-go years and then the slow-go years and then the no-go years, <laughs> spend less as they age. And so yeah, you can design those types of strategies and that the RMD tables are the example of spend an increasing percentage of what's left as you age that can align very well with uh, being an efficient drawdown strategy. The 4% the rule is the least efficient retirement strategy because it just doesn't build in any mechanism to respond to what's happening in the markets or with age. And, and so you create a risk that you might run out of money, but you also most of the time dramatically underspend relative to what you could have done and, and leave behind a, just a big legacy at the end. So building in 
some sort of response to how the market or how your portfolio is actually doing in retirement it is just a huge benefit to improving average spending levels in retirement and, and everything else. Right. And then you're able to run simulations that account for that um, distribution function, right? That you can sort of customize for an individual who wants to say spend a little bit more um, during the go-go years and then, and then, wind down their spending a little bit and then maybe expect to have to ramp it up again. If maybe they have a family history of some type of some sort of health condition or what have you, that gives a high probability for needing higher, a higher level of care, you know, <laughs> further down the road. So you can have this sort of custom spending function. And then as each year passes and you get gains and losses in your portfolio, you'll just rerun that optimization against that, that um, target spending pattern Mm -hmm. to make adjustments to what you're going to spend that year. And then presumably that could end up being pretty volatile depending on the underlying investments. So maybe there's a smoothing element mm -hmm. to that. Yeah. Yeah. You're explaining the whole framework around <laughs> choosing a, a spending approach that that's going to be a lot more practical in real life. <laughs> right. Gotcha. Are there any, sort of developments in technology or innovations, whether from a portfolio construction standpoint or just, you know, ways to have better estimates uh, or anything at all in this space that you think weren't mentioned and that have you excited for, for, for new research that may be coming down the pipe? Yeah. And something that's not really new per se, but in, in recent times, I've become a lot more enamored by just the funded ratio approach of building a retirement plan, which is where you just gather up all the assets and liabilities. And, and that can include uh, income streams like social security benefits, what's the present value? And then my essential spending goal, what's the present value of that? And collecting that all, looking at, do I enough have enough assets to match my liabilities? Am I overfunded for retirement, underfunded for retirement? It's a simple metric. It doesn't require any Monte Carlo simulations. Uh, I, I think it can be a great approach for just assessing a basic retirement plan. And so it can also link to other, there, I mean, there will be a one-to-one a -one relationship between funded ratios and probabilities of success that you could reverse engineer if you want. But so it's an interesting research there. And also just a dynamic spending strategy that's somehow linked to your funded ratio. As you become more overfunded, spend more, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, I think that could be a, a good avenue for future research and just where that becomes more realistic. Like the 4% rule is just not, even though everyone uses it as the starting point to talk about retirement income, it's, you can't use it in real life because if you're deferring social security, you, you spend more now, you'll spend less later. If you have to pay taxes, taxes do not have inflation adjusted constant uh, taxation. It, it, it's, taxes can be all over the place. And so the funded ratio approach or, or any financial planning software can accommodate those real world up and downs and cash flows and things and, and let you model a more realistic plan. And I, I just like the funded ratio because it is so simple, doesn't require Monte Carlo simulation. I think it can make a lot of sense for people as a starting point. So that's where I see a, a lot of innovation coming. Great. Wade, you've been really generous with your time. Uh, really, really appreciate you coming today. Uh, 
let's give you an opportunity to uh, let people know where to find you and maybe an opportunity to uh, tell us the name of the book again. Sure. Oh, thank you. And, and so um, the website, if you'd like to get on our weekly email list, is retirementresearcher.com. And then my newest book is the, the Retirement Planning Guidebook. And the first chapter is about that idea of retirement styles. And on page 15, there's a link if you'd like to see, are you a total return, income protection, or so forth? What, what kind of retirement style might be suitable for you? That's great. That sounds really cool. Yep. Thanks again. And uh, have a great weekend, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, Wade. Thank Thanks for all for joining. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time. Most investors feel comfortable with their domestic equity and bond portfolios because they tend to thrive during periods of economic growth and low inflation. And we don't blame you. It's been a great ride. But it's a big world out there full of opportunities you may be ignoring. Sadly, we live in a world dominated by a fear of missing out, or FOMO. And in the last 10 years, U.S. equities and bonds have outperformed and generated massive amounts of FOMO. This hasn't always been the case. In the mid-2000s, the best-performing markets were international equities, especially emerging markets, golden commodities. So what happens if growth collapses and inflation becomes the new norm? Or what if the U.S. dollar collapses and U.S. assets are no longer attractive? What will the new FOMO markets be? And will your portfolio keep up or be left behind? Enter Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund, ticker RDMIX, a strategy that is designed to thrive across different markets and economic regimes. Unlike most traditional strategies that keep allocation static and let volatility happen, Adaptive Asset Allocation applies a proprietary systematic process designed to dynamically transition toward thriving asset classes and eliminate those that are not, all the while aiming for consistent volatility and stable returns. There's almost always a bull market somewhere in the world. Don't let yesterday's FOMO get in the way of tomorrow's opportunities. Instead, let Adaptive Asset Allocation help you fill in your domestic portfolio gaps. To learn more, visit RationalMF.com and check out the Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund.